Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Prisoners at Coyote Ridge Prison in Washington State launched a mass hunger strike on February 1st after years of being served cold, unhealthy breakfasts. The Washington Department of Corrections originally canceled hot breakfasts a couple years ago as a cost-cutting measure. Michael Lanier, a prisoner there, said, quote, We used to get served pancakes, eggs, toasts, cartons of milk. Guys are tired of this sugar, and guys have been drinking powdered milk now for years, and they're upset. We recently reported that prisoners at Kokoran had won their demands last month via a hunger strike. Unfortunately, we have learned that the warden reneged on the agreement and prisoners are back on strike. Here is a statement from the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. On January 9, 2019, an estimated 250 prisoners initiated a hunger strike within California State Prison, Kukoran's 3C facility in response to an indefinite lockdown. On January 28, after three weeks of refusing food trays, the warden met with representatives, granted full canteen privileges, and promised to work out a separate yard schedule. The strikers suspended their hunger strike and were ready to continue negotiations in good faith. Over the last two weeks, there's been no progress on receiving full canteen or separate yard time. The warden has reneged on all pledges, so the strikers of 3C refused breakfast trays on Monday, February 11th, and held a day-long noise demo banging on doors and windows. The initial demands remain, and the strikers insist they be dealt with in good faith. All units within Kokoran's 3C facility have been on, quote, modified program, unquote, for four months now. This essentially means a lockdown and all meaningful aspects, no visitation, no canteen, no educational, rehab, or vocational programming, and little yard time. The pretext for this indefinite lockdown by CDCR of hundreds of prisoners for months on end is an altercation on September 28th, which saw three prisoners from their unit attacked and put into the infirmary. Group punishments and indefinite isolation are standard practices by CDCR and must stop. These practices only escalate trauma and conflict and ultimately only promote violence and destabilization within facilities. The effects are not an accident or regrettable byproducts. This is how CDCR interprets its mission, control by brutalization and division. Earlier this week, 78 prisoners in Haiti escaped while nearby police were busy battling anti-government rebels. Street fighting, blockades, and protests have swept the country in an effort to bring down the government and fight corruption. And now, we speak with Samantha Johnson, an organizer in Brooklyn with no new jails. As we reported recently, the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn recently was the target of large-scale demonstrations, after prisoners expressed to their loved ones on the outside that they were being denied basic human needs such as heat, fresh food, and running water. Now, Johnson describes being on the front lines of this protest and next steps. Here she is. So in the past month, we have found out that those uh, individuals that are inside of MDC have been without hot water, heat, uh, basic needs have not been met, medical, as well as 
food has not been properly um, given to them in a prepared way. Um, so it's spoiled or one day before it's spoiled. They have not been able to have access to commissary. The real uh, reason that we got really in depth was based on a electrical fire that was claimed that happened in late of January, I believe January 27th, where actually um, there was an electrical fire and there was no reporting of that fire. And then in February 1st, I got notified through my colleagues that there's been a long standing time of no hot water, no heat, no food, no new gels, and along with other organizations gathered up together to sound this out to our media outlets and to make sure that if there was a way that we could be proactive in creating a sense of awareness to communities, as well as those family members who feel like their voices have not been heard, that this would be a way that we could do that. And also, we didn't know that the conditions at MDC for many, many years have been in a very deplorable conditions, and it's unacceptable. And we knew that that was not something that anyone should have to go through. One, we don't want anyone to be in an institution um, based off of pretrial detention, which means no one has gotten a verdict on their sentencing and they actually are waiting for the sentencing. And so when that notification came to us, we got our families and friends together, we mobilized immediately, and we've been out there ever since the notifying of February 1st. Uh, we still currently right now have people on the ground um, and reports are still coming back that there is still no heat. We are seeing images of individuals inside of the cages. They are waving their shirts and they are they're trying to communicate the best way they, we, they know how. Family members are coming to us and also anonymously telling us that they're being retaliated against and they're fearful of even looking out the window or even shining a light due to a guard flipping their mattress or doing a check-in automatically just because they feel um, that information inside is being leaked out. On Saturday, many, many family members came. It was a beautiful experience to see the mobilization of the awareness. On Saturday, we stood in front and we protested and aggravated a lot of officers, I'm quite sure. But understanding the, the, the significance of this was more than the aggravation, understanding the humanity that needs to be applied to the situation and the awareness that has not been given is something that we we can't stand for. And so if we are thousands of people in the world understand how important this is, this is not just one occurrence, this is many occurrences within institutionalized caging of people, primarily black and brown folk. So we know Saturday we stood there, on Sunday we stood there, on Monday, the residents of this institution, the detainees was what we call them, were assaulted. Uh, individuals were beaten. They were harassed. Water was placed on them. And, and it was just no different than Guantanamo Bay, if you want to think about it in that aspect of the, the deplorable conditions. Also, in addition to retaliation for just surviving and trying to activate your voice to get basic needs met, which is inhumane in any way, shape or form. And so, like I said, my comrades and I have been out there just trying to lift up the spirits of every person inside and outside 
to just understand that we're here, we're going to be here, we're not going anywhere. If the state and the federal government decides to put the lights on, that's that was great. It was a nice showcase. They put the generator on and the lights on, and that's great. But as I said before, smoke and mirrors have had uh, a lasting effect and a opportunity to say, hey, we did something. But there's a long-standing effect of why that had to even be presented. Why must you have to say you did something? It should have already been done. We understand as No New Jails that we want to abolish MDC. We do not want any form of institutionalized caging. We feel like community keeps people safe. And understanding that we came together because of heat. It's extremely cold in many places of, of the northeastern um, area and within the world. And everyone has access to heat. And if you're in a federal institution that's being paid billions of dollars to fund and hold people in spaces, then heat is a basic need. It's a human right. We're not leaving this alone. We understand that politicians will come in and they do what they do best and they'll come and appeal to the people. But just because they turn on lights doesn't mean that they are no longer held accountable to continuing their pitches and their stories that they've told to many family members that they are here for the people. And we understand that when you hold someone in a cage of this nature and this magnitude that it's inhumane and we want and no new jails, a jail-free NYC. It's just a perpetuating system of how it doesn't work out. No one comes back into a, a, the world and say, I'm glad I was caged up. It taught me something, you know. Many people, they wish they never experienced it. Family member engagement has been very interesting. We know as No New Jails, as we're collaborating with other partners, that family engagement is important. We also are thinking about the safety of family members as well. We can't take the chance of amplifying this message without thinking about what safety looks like for us. And so family members have been very instrumental in letting us know exactly what's going on inside. Family members are hearing us that they're getting more engaged. They're curious about this. They're curious about why this is going on. They're trying to figure out who is accountable to these things. And so everyone is taking their role at being engaged a part of this situation. These are inhumane conditions. And this is not only happening in Brooklyn. It's happening in Wisconsin. It's happening in Philadelphia. It's happening in every part of the fabric of the United States of America and also is happening in other ways. And so when we're talking about community over-policing, when we're talking about just having someone wear an ankle bracelet, when we're talking about bail, there's many layers of inhumane conditions that we're putting up, that people are being put into. And so family has been instrumental. Uh, Communities are, are mobilizing and we couldn't do it without family members. We cannot even stand with the tent and the signs if we did not have information from family members saying thank you or either, no, there still isn't any heat. No, my son has still not eaten in three days. No, they've got cold showers. They haven't gotten blankets. You know, it, it, it's, it's essential and it makes us become more powerful when we have family members beside us. And eventually, we want the family members to mobilize. We want them to engage the way that they need to engage and give them power or have them reclaim power that has been taken away from them because of the institutionalized democracy that is uh, mass incarceration. First, when I got on the ground on Saturday, when I got off the train, I prepared myself like, okay, we're gonna, I got everything in order. I know what I'm going to do. I have my tasks. 
I got to the block on, I believe, Third Avenue or Fourth Avenue, and I can hear the glass, like it's like tin cans clanking together. Before I even got, I was about a good 10, 100 yards away from the institution, but I could hear clanking and I could just, and it went straight to my spirit. And I had to stop for a second. And I looked at this institution and it started to sink in that this was not just what I have been saying online and that I've been rallying people to come to. This, this is real. Like there's human beings like in cattle cages, banging on their window just to hear or see an image of a human being who can save them. And it got my skin, my hair rose. I was just, I had a moment. And throughout that whole day was an emotional experience and a roller coaster because not only did we have the family members that were standing there and, and looking, just staring, gazing at this facility, you also had organizers who probably never been through a situation very quite like this. Now, many of my organizing comrades have gone to Ferguson, and that was an emotional situation and mentally disturbing to a lot of folks still to this day. But this was my moment where I had to, I, I had that feeling of like, I wanted to like, I felt sick. So I got closer to the facility and the loud, the sound got louder and louder. And it was a roaring sound, overwhelmingly too much to bear. I knew how I needed to hold the hands of the mothers, organize and strategize with my comrades. We came here to get them hot water, heat and humane conditions. And that's where we're not leaving until that happens. When we got together, family members were there. And throughout that day, we created a family in seconds of just tears and stories and just talking about our experiences and why we, we have to continue to fight. All I kept thinking about is why in the hell are we here? Why do we have to stand every day, every waking moment to advocate and fight for the basic needs of human dignity? And this is it's unfair. No one should have to fight for these things. And we were saying heat is a human right and that if we don't have heat, there is going to be no peace. And it was great to get those words out. And the sounds were still overwhelming from our chants. The sounds of banging and the flickering of lights still took over our chants. It took over our cries. It took over our stories. There was the incident that occurred while we were rallying and a mother was talking to her son through the gate and they were in wreck and we could see the, the family members inside the institution were walking back and forth and they were saying thank you and they were waving their towels and they were looking at us and just like trying to communicate. But there was one gentleman who saw his mother and she screamed back out to him and they, they, they spoke back and forth. And afterwards, she broke down. She could not take it. She looked at him and as if she saw him for the first time and to come to find out it was the first time she saw her son. We just kept like encouraging her and, 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 and doing our chance and, and saying to, to the, the woman, you know, it's all right. We got you. We got you. We got you. We got you. She broke down. She could not take it anymore. And she ran to the door. And as she ran to the door, other community members stood next to her and they grabbed her and held her and she bust out in tears. She said, my baby, 
my baby's inside of there. I've not seen my baby. And it, my stomach went back to that moment where I heard the clanking. And I just, I just want, I wanted to grab her, but other comrades had grabbed her already. And she broke free from that and the doors were already open in the institution. And it was just like a sign. So she ran and ran to that door on the second and she hopped that gate. Another man hopped the gate and ran in there with her. And that's, was a moment of just like, this went from, I just want to see my baby to, I'd be damned if anyone stopped me. And anyone who knows a child uh, who has children in their life knows that when you don't get an opportunity to see someone for a very long time, the, the urge and the sense of urgency uh, becomes so much more greater and so much more powerful when you get an opportunity. And when she saw that opportunity of those doors being open, it was just like the heavens were letting her know, go and see your baby. Now, although that was a risk, and I spoke about earlier about safety with our community, she took the highest risk she could, and that was possibly death. And she ran in, and we all ran in behind her. And reporters came, of course, and they uh, kind of made it a little bit more complex. But she went in there, and as people stood in that lobby, there was this, you know, why couldn't we get in? It was just, it, it made me think of so many historical aspects of just, like, give us access. And then when the, the guards got agitated by us just being in space and occupying space, they began to pepper spray us. Of course, that became a lot to deal with because you had at least 50 people inside of a small lobby, reporters, elected officials, and this woman who just wanted to see her son. Once the pepper spray began, women, children were exposed to the smell of this toxic chemical. We put water on people's eyes. We were flushing everyone's eyes out. And the sounds of those tin cans just continually, loudly roared as women are screaming, as children are running away, being protected with, with, with scarves and hoodies, as elected officials have been exposed to this chemical, as celebrities, whomever. There was no title at this time. They didn't care who you were. They didn't care if you was the president of the United States or if anybody is important. It was about them being the guards, protecting their sense of safety. One woman created uproar of exposing how the system does when they are feeling like they are attacked. They create systems that are militarized and they they intimidate. And so pepper spray was a way to get a woman away from her son. But there's so many other things that are keeping her away from her son, which are the bureaucratic uh, systems and also the mass incarceration structure of incarceration. And that is what's keeping us away. And so what safety means for them is to perpetuate the same type of fear tactics because one woman and many other women and men and children have not had access to their families. And so from that point on, we knew as organizers that this was just one of many ways that we have to still be there is we're not moved by intimidation. We may have our own doubts because we're human. We may have our own reservations about why this work is so important. But when you see moments like that and you see a child being exposed to that image, that will never change that child's image of what the police is. Any person who wants to ask me, how was that moment that day like? I would say it was the exposure of how our American threat is. It was the exposure of what uh, nationalism and colonialism looks like in that very day and age. It is the way that 
capitalism has ruled and also this institutionalized racism has ruled in creating deeper conversations that probably will never be uh, unpacked because we are in this mirage of thinking that safety is about protecting and serving, but who are you protecting? Who are you serving? And on that Sunday, we walked around the camp because there's two sides. And there was a truck that was loading up M16s in gear. And it was a guy who was sitting in his vehicle looking at us like, what are you doing? And we're just taking footage. It was around 11 o'clock. And we were just sitting there looking because it was four of us. I think it was eight on the ground. There was just four of us that looked at this truck. And they just stood like we were exposed. And they stood for a second just looking at us and we looked at them. And of course, I had to move our folk out because we were unprotected. And when I moved us out and we went back to the front where he had already set up a tent, we had already um, gotten blankets and a heater. And so we were ready to camp out. And uh, food was already provided. By the time we got back to the front, there were at least eight other men in full riot gear, full guns, hand ties, everything, within the five to 10 minute time that we were standing on the other side. And it's eight of us now on the ground. It's eight of them. Who you think's gonna win? We obviously did not leave. We didn't care because we were willing at that moment, at that time, to risk our lives, being as vulnerable as we were. We knew that it was not bulletproof. We knew that, that that heater was not our wand, a magic wand to protect us from the from any um, any impact of anything that these gentlemen and women were going to do. But we stood strong, and we stood there, and we still banged and flashlights, and we could still hear the tapping on the glass. Now this has already happened while um, the lights had been turned on by Sunday. So after Sunday, it was all done to some people in the imagery of media. Oh, the lights on, we're good. Um, so that Sunday night, no one was really there to show what was still going on. And so we're standing there and then there were, you know, occasional moments where the guards would come out and walk very so closely to our tent and would stand there and look at us and look at their gear and have us like admire their gear as if it was a fashion show, as if this was some showcase of standoff. We still did not move. I did not leave that facility until about seven, eight o'clock that next Monday morning. And we knew that we had to stay there. We started learning the hours in which the transitions happened when the guards started shifting. And then we also knew when we could communicate through lights and signage to our family members inside. And we knew that this was going to be a long fight. We're not letting this down. We're not backing up. We're not being broken. We're not going to be intimidated. We've done more than the city has probably done. And they've probably going to claim that they've done a lot. <laughs> we know that it's always people power that moves things and get things done. Judge Torres um, had her hearing on Tuesday and re reported back that it seemed as if everything was cleaned up and it seemed as if their conditions did not look as dire as what was reported. Although in that report, she 
also admitted that the stories that she heard were gut-wrenching. And there are also individuals who came to the stand and said that there was negligence. So the report back was 50-50. We knew could go in any way. And then we also knew that the government was going to do what they do, which is come in, look at the clean cells and the good people who are going to quote unquote speak on behalf of those who are in the space. That's exactly what it was. We knew that this was not a checker game. This is chess. And we know that there are many ways to get around accountability. And this is obviously one of them. So that report came out. We are pushing back still. But right now, it looks as if people are becoming aware of it and they want to have answers. What answers do they really want is not probably what we want. They want just to say, you clean up the house, make sure everything is good. Once it's good, then we can get this off of our plate type of thing. What we want as organizers and as abolitionists, we want folk to not think that this is not happening in other places. We want our government to acknowledge the brutality that is going on not only in Brooklyn. We are pushing back on institutions that are harming our people and not giving the resources the way that they need to. So what we want is Warren Quay to be fired. What we want as organizers is to make sure our communities are continuously safe. What we want is not to over-militarize the police or even to have them even policing our communities. We do know that this is going to be, like I said before, this is a chess game. It's a movement of, of wit and strategy. We, we can't allow for the strategy of things that we know play into the cards the same way to keep doing the same thing. We won't warrant to go. We want the warrant to leave, and we also want those conditions in this facility to be up to par. And those who need to be released, let them go. This is a jail. It's not a prison. It's pretrial detention. People have no money to get out, and they should be out. If we could just take the whole jail and just, like, topple it over and give everybody freedom passes, that would be great. We know that's a long way to go. But we're organizing to make sure that the vision of getting people free and to taking away the power of this type of this type of power of holding people in space in inhumane conditions will not cease until all of us are free. What we want folk to do and support is to keep amplifying the message, obviously, to keep letting um, their their immediate communities know that this is a dire problem. This is an extreme problem. We have that structure in place now where family members can report back without having to be penalized. We also want folk to understand that this is not a one-hand-off problem, that this is happening within many different institutions inside of our United States, and that if we are strong enough to create awareness about how to make sure family members have a voice and that we can look at policies and practices that are doing the same type of systematic oppression that we can actually address some things and holding people accountable for creating these policies and practices of big business being inside of our institution to create, you know, whatever they create, this capitalistic society, but also for those who are inside of the institution and just won't let up because they have been bought, right? Or they won't speak up because they're feeling their fear. Of, of their job is at, at risk. So looking behind the scenes is what we're asking. Look a little bit deeper. Don't look for face value type of uh, rhetoric. And, and if the media is showcasing one thing, ask a really strong question. So get engaged, get involved. 
and also share as much information as you can. Um, as organizers, we are dedicated to this work and we're committed to getting as much of power back to the people as we can. And we know that it's going to be a long haul. So we're dedicated to being in that space until there is full heat, there is full hot water, there is food that's being properly made and it's not spoiled, and that those who should have been held accountable are going to be held accountable. Every family member that is inside of that institution, we love you. Every family member who is outside of this institution that is facing their loved one is caged up. We want to send our love to you. We also want to say that we are not letting this go. We are not letting a light flicker to deter us from the overall goal and the mission and our wants and needs for our community. We are not going to let this go at all. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.